Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to episode 28. It's a beautiful day here in Ohio, and I'm sitting in front of a microphone. What the heck is wrong with me? I have daffodils popping up in my yard, so I can say for sure that spring is here. No matter what the calendar says, until I see something green in the garden, it still feels like winter. It's been so black and white outside since late October. I feel like I was living in the Wizard of Oz before Dorothy's house lands in Oz and she opens the door and sees vivid colors and meets the munchkins. Shall we begin? The former Microsoft CEO and co-founder Bill Gates, fourth richest person in the world, is a pretty bright fellow. So if Bill Gates has a plan to save mankind from global warming, I'm willing to give him a long listen. More than Greta, more than AOC, and way more than the remaining Koch brother. Gates says mankind adds 51 billion tons of greenhouse gas to our atmosphere every year, and we need to bring that number down to zero by 2050. Gates says it won't even cost that much. Okay, Bill, keep talking. In Gates' new book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs We Need, he explains his plan in detail. Here are a few highlights. Gates says we need to implement something he calls green premiums. That's the difference in cost between a fossil fuel-based way of doing something and the clean, non-emitting way of doing the same thing. Gates lists cargo ships as an example of where the problem must be fixed. A cargo ship runs on fuel that costs about $1.30 per gallon in the United States. The clean version of this fuel costs between $5 and $9 per gallon. Well, that's not going to work. There isn't a company in the world that's going to sign up for a fuel increase like that. New technology must be designed and implemented. Gates says there are four areas where companies can make practical differences. One, mobilize capital to reduce the green premiums. He wants the wealthiest people to raise some money and give it to people who can create new technologies. The second way is to reconsider the products that a company buys. If you have a company and you have a fleet of vehicles, buy electric vehicles next time. This is just one example of altering your purchasing choices. The third area is expanding research and development. Gates has put his money where his mouth is. He's invested in Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, two companies that produce plant-based meats. And four, help shape public policy. Get involved. Call your state representative. Attend a meeting. Heck, start a podcast. You can use the app Five Calls and let your voice be heard. I've mentioned this app several times on the podcast, and it's super easy to express your opinions on a myriad of subjects. On the app today, you can speak to your senator or house representative or leave a message for them telling them why they should take action on climate change. The app gives you an easy script to follow if you're concerned about getting tongue-tied when you speak. Gates wants the United States to take the lead in climate change and form a National Institute of Energy Innovation. He suggests shifting the tax credits for solar and wind to offshore wind, energy storage, and new types of steel. Gates claims to have put $1 billion of his own dollars into companies striving toward zero emissions. But let's not feel bad for him. He's still got $123 billion in the bank and a few bucks stuck in the sofa cushions or trapped in the cup holder of his electric vehicle. Gates admits he flies in private jets and owns big houses, but he buys carbon offsets for $400 a ton for each private flight he takes. Gates is big on carbon capture. 
And this makes sense because even if we stopped dumping all the CO2 into the air tomorrow, the carbon already in the atmosphere would stay there for hundreds of years. We need to figure out a way to suck it out of the sky. Maybe James Dyson can figure out a way. They have pretty cool vacuum cleaners, and every year they sponsor the James Dyson Award, an international design award that encourages new problem-solving ideas. Gates is really keen on a company called TerraPower, a nuclear company that uses depleted uranium for its fuel. Gates is helping fund their first reactor, which he hopes will be built in the next five to seven years. I was glad to hear that Gates wants us to fix this planet and says moving into space is not the solution for the worsening climate here on Earth. If we can build a new civilization on Mars, can't we just fix this planet first? Gentlemen, prepare to leave. I have two great YouTubers for you today. First up, our changing climate. With 274,000 subscribers on their YouTube channel, recent videos include, Is Concrete Destroying Our Planet? What Can You Do About Climate Change? And three climate change solutions that could actually work. And there's dozens and dozens more videos that will educate and entertain us. Topics include food and farming, consumerism, movies, music, politics, society, and much more. Hmm, kind of sounds like this podcast. Most of the videos are less than 15 minutes in length, and you're going to learn something, like the most recent video that explains a few things about ecofascism from people we were taught in school to hold in high regard. And there's a newcomer from the UK on YouTube I'd like you to check out. It's called All About Climate. The host is a smart, good-natured man with an easy voice to listen to named Roche. He only has 809 subscribers. Well, 810, now that I joined the list. I like his five-minute video that easily explains the difference between regular gases like oxygen and nitrogen compared to greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, water vapor, and methane. Well, he's British, so I should say methane. I'm always interested in learning something new. Even an old dog like me can learn a new trick. Thanks, Roche. If your social media networks need attention like mine did, there's only one place to call, at Properly Social. Reach out to Ivana, and she'll do her magic like she helped me. I'll do that. 1988. If you thought environmental problems started recently, let me introduce you to 1988. First, there was the Ashland oil spill. Happy New Year! It's 1988, and to celebrate the new year on January 2nd, an Ashland oil tank containing 3.9 million gallons of diesel fuel collapsed and discharged three-quarters of a million gallons into the Mongahela River in Floreff, Pennsylvania. The spill resulted in severe short-term environmental damage, the closing of a major inland port, threatened wildlife, and drinking water supplies for about 1 million people in more than 80 communities across three states. The fuel spread to the Ohio River, and approximately 23,000 suburban Pittsburgh residents lived for a week without tap water. Federal agencies used 20,000 feet of boom and barges to contain the spill and collect the fuel. It didn't help that it was freezing cold that January, creating the mechanical issues with the equipment and causing hypothermia for the crew and in increasing the probability of contamination because oil emulsified faster in the cold. Following a federal investigation which concluded that Ashland violated the industry standards when they had reconstructed the tank in Floreff, Pennsylvania, the federal government made Ashland pay $2.2 million in fines and cover cleanup costs, which together with compensation to the distressed communities amounted to over $18 million. Ashland later took full responsibility for the incident accepting that they did violate the industry standards when reconstructing the tank. The original tank was assembled in Cleveland, Ohio in 1940 and rebuilt in Pennsylvania in 1985. 
The original welds and those used during the reassembly made the tank's steel walls more brittle. Perhaps this is why Steeler fans hate bronze fans. On the other side of the pond, in July, things weren't much better. In England, there was the Camelford water pollution incident. An employee for the South Wales Water dumped 20 tons of aluminum sulfate, I'm sorry, aluminum sulfate into the wrong tank at the Lower Moor Water Treatment Plant. The plant was an unmanned installation, and the driver was unfamiliar with the plant layout and delivery procedures. Aluminum sulfate, used to remove solid particles from cloudy water, went in highly concentrated quantities directly into the main water supply to 20,000 homes. The acidity of the water caused by the aluminum sulfate stripped a cocktail of chemicals from the pipe networks as well as lead and copper piping in people's homes. Residents complained to Southwest Water about the taste and skin irritations that they were suffering. Some residents' hair turned blue. This explains a lot about Marge Simpson. A spokesman for the Water Authority assured everybody that the water, while tasting slightly acidic, was safe to drink. Over the following months, hundreds of the town's residents complained about a range of symptoms, including skin rashes, and joint pain, and sore throats, and short-term memory problems, and general exhaustion. The complaints were investigated by the government-appointed Lower Moor Incident Health Advisory Group. And what do you think they said? They concluded there was no convincing evidence that harmful accumulation of aluminum had occurred and that there was a greater prevalence of ill health due to the toxic effects of the contaminated water. The advisory group recognized real suffering within the community, but attributed this to anxiety rather than physical health effects, a conclusion which really angered the residents. How about a movie? Cane Toads, An Unnatural History is a 47-minute documentary film about the introduction of cane toads to Australia. Cane toads were introduced to Australia with the aim of controlling a sugar cane pest called the cane beetle. But the toads overmultiplied and became a serious problem in the Australian ecosystem. I mention this as a reminder that trying to fix one problem often causes another, even if the intentions were honorable. Operation Touchstone in the United States was a nuclear test series, a group of 13 nuclear tests conducted in 1977 and 1988. Operation Cornerstone followed later in the year, and in 1989 with 11 more nuclear tests in Nevada. Thanks, guys. The series included Touchstone Kearsarge, a joint U.S.-Soviet test as part of the joint verification experiment. The purpose was to provide yield data to both parties about each other's nuclear test sites so that accurate remote measurements could be taken to verify each other's compliance with the Threshold Test Ban Treaty. Can you imagine if this was going on now and they were launching underground nuclear weapons in Nevada? People with the power to kill us thought this was a good idea back then. The syringe tide was an environmental disaster during 87 and 88 in Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York, where significant amounts of medical waste, including hypodermic syringes and raw garbage, washed up on the beaches of the Jersey Shore in New York City and on Long Island. The officials scrambled to identify the source of the material, and the local economies struggled with diminished tourism. Reports of medical waste and sewage spills drove away hundreds of thousands of vacationers, Reports of medical waste and sewage spills drove away hundreds of thousands of vacationers, costing the businesses in that area more than $1 billion in lost revenue. Later, the losses were tallied between 15 and 40% of typical tourism revenue. Officials finally traced the source of waste to the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island. New York City was required to pay $1 million for past pollution damages, as well as pay for the cleanup. No reparations were paid to the business owners on the Jersey Shore for revenue they lost during the months of inactivity. The syringe tide is referenced in Billy Joel's 1989 hit single, We Didn't Start the Fire, 
by the line hypodermics on the shore. This incident prompted Congress to enact the Medical Waste Tracking Act of 1988. There was some good news in 88, too. The Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer went into effect. It was signed a couple years earlier in 1985. The agreement provided the framework for international reductions in the production of chlorofluorocarbons due to their contribution to the destruction of the ozone layer. And in Australia, the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act of 1988 was signed. That gave protection to species, genetic material, and habitats to prevent extinction and allow maximum genetic diversity within the Australian state of Victoria for perpetuity. One last one, the general law of ecological equilibrium and environmental protection is an important piece of Mexican environmental legislation passed in March of 88 that defines the framework for all environmental law in Mexico. And on the lighter side, in 1988, the three top-grossing movies were The top three movies were Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, and Good Morning Vietnam. But my favorite that year, Roaring In at number 23, was a dinosaur movie called The Land Before Time. No, Dr. Hammond wasn't there. But I'll never forget the story of an orphan brontosaurus named Littlefoot, who teams up with other baby dinosaurs to reunite with their families in a valley. Look out for Sharptooth! I feel good that I was able to work in another cheap reference to dinosaurs. My children will cringe when they hear this perfect. Faith by George Michael was the number one song in the USA, and The Tommyknockers by Stephen King was the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. So long, 1988. It's almost Earth Day, and you can check out the festivities at earthday.org. Earth Day this year is April 22nd, and on the next episode, we'll be talking a lot about this year's events. The theme of Earth Day this year is Restore Our Earth, but you don't have to wait until April 22nd to get involved with the Global Earth Challenge. Download the app for Android or iOS and get started. Collect observations in air quality, water quality, insect populations, climate change, plastic pollution, and food sustainability, and provide valuable environmental insight and a platform for policy change and restoration efforts in these areas. Yes, you out there. Right now, you can be part of the research that changes the world. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Go to earthday.org and find a topic that interests you. Come on, do it now. After the show. I've been talking a lot about seeds lately, specifically the global seed vault in Norway. Now there's another idea to help keep mankind alive in case of worldwide disaster. Students and staff at the University of Arizona want to build a complex in the moon's lava tubes and staff them with robots and run the entire place with solar panels on the surface of the moon. Sounds very futuristic. This idea came to light at the IEEE Aerospace Conference last week. The IEEE part stands for the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. The plans would not just duplicate the seeds stored in Norway, but would include frozen eggs, sperm, seeds, and DNA from all of Earth's nearly 7 million species kind of like a Noah's Ark. Maybe there'd be room for Ted Williams' head. Only baseball fans would get that. Is this plan really necessary if we have so many of these items already safely stored on Earth? Remember when I told you about the flood at the vault? Apparently the moon plan doesn't have anything to do with climate change or war, but the fear of another supervolcanic eruption, like the one in Indonesia 75,000 years ago. That event sent the world into a 1,000-year cooling period and a global volcanic winter that lasted up to a decade. There are no volcanoes on the moon. Once mankind has a base on the moon, 
And that will happen sometime in the not-too-distant future, perhaps in 20 years. We'll send robots or drones into recently discovered lava tubes and map them. The plan calls for 250 rockets to the moon, each one taking samples from Earth and cryogenically storing the samples inside the lava tubes, protecting them from space radiation and meteorites. If it sounds a little too far-fetched, remember it wasn't too many decades ago we didn't have airplanes or automobiles, and now we have rovers and drones on Mars, even as you listen to this podcast. Happy birthday, boy! Today's birthday boy is Lester Brown, born on March 28, 1934, in New Jersey. He's the founder of the World Watch Institute and the Earth Policy Institute. Brown is the author of 50 books and worries about feeding a planet with an ever-growing population. In 1979, Brown was already spreading warnings about overfishing and deforestation. Brown was one of the signatories of the Manifesto, Humanism and Its Aspirations, the third and shortest of the previous ones. Humanist Manifesto, published in 1933, and the follow-up in 1973 called the American Humanist Association. Brown probably had to build an entire new wing of his house to hold his numerous awards and prizes. Among those include the United Nations Environmental Prize in 1987 and the 1994 Blue Planet Prize. He even won the Presidential Medal from the Italian government. In 1995, he was chosen for the Rachel Carlson Environmental Achievement Award and in 2012, the Earth Hall of Fame Kyoto. I'm not even familiar with the Kyoto Hall of Fame, but any Hall of Fame is worth noting. Brown's beginnings were a little less noteworthy. He grew up on a farm in New Jersey without electricity or running water. When he was a little older, Brown and his brother ran a successful tomato business. After college, Brown went to India on a youth exchange program, and once he understood food shortages and he saw plenty of it there, along with a surging population, he turned his talents to serving the United States Department of Agriculture and their Foreign Agricultural Service. In 1974, Brown founded the World Watch Institute, a research group focused on global environmental issues. He won the MacArthur Foundation Prize in 1986. That award came with a $250,000 grant. Nice. The name of the award was the Genius Award. Doesn't get much better than that, right? He got the money and the title. Not bad, dude. In 1991, Brown started the Earth Policy Institute. His goal for the Institute? Save civilization. Might as well aim high, that's what I always say. Brown sure did that in every facet of his life. The Institute closed when Brown retired in 2015. But as we've learned on this podcast, there is no shortage of other geniuses picking up the mantle and coming up with innovative ways to save mankind from our own stupidity. One of Brown's books, Plan B 4.0, is required reading for all freshmen at California State University. And I'll leave you with one quote from Lester Brown. One way or another, the choice will be made by our generation, but it will affect life on Earth for all generations to come. Well, that's a wrap for episode 28. Thanks to the entire gang for helping with the show, as usual. To my listeners in Brazil, I say, como vai? And hey, good news. Tomorrow I get my second vaccination shot. I'm so excited about that. Soon I'll be able to see my brothers and their family and friends in person, not just on Zoom. So until next time, good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening.